0: The swampy land New Orleans was built on had a way of surprising its earliest settlers.
1: Initially, when the French would have first arrived here and buried the dead below ground, when we had a flood event, they had a nasty habit of popping back up uninvited.
0: Coming up, we hear what you might encounter on a ghost tour of the city.
1: I had people burst into tears. I had people try to run out of the room. I had one girl swear that she had been slapped in the face.
0: Travel writer Mary Morris tells us about traveling solo in India when she went to view tigers in the wild.
2: There's incredible kindness and vibrancy and color and
0: food. She also found that India has a way of keeping you on your toes.
2: Put the itinerary aside because it's not always going to work out.
0: And we'll start the hour looking at a cold-blooded prince from 15th century Romania who's still thought of as a national hero
3: he's considered kind of like a great combination of Robin Hood and Rambo. You know, he defended Romania in an impossible situation.
0: It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. A trip to India can be one of the most challenging and rewarding experiences you'll ever embark on. Author Mary Morris is back with us today on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us how a journey to see tigers in the wild ended up showing her life-changing lessons from India and that she'll never actually get to see any tigers until you start looking for signs of tigers first. Plus, tour guide Sandy Hester lets us in on the stories and haunted places she'll take you to on one of her ghost walks of New Orleans. It's where elaborate mausoleums and cursed buildings all have their own stories to reveal. While he was in Romania on a writing assignment for Lonely Planet, Life Pedersen ventured into the rural outposts of Transylvania and Wallachia. That's where Prince Vlad Dracula ruled in the 15th century. And it's where life was surprised to learn that the inspiration for Bram Stoker's infamous character is actually regarded there as a national hero. He writes about him in his book, Backpacking with Dracula, on the trail of Vlad the Impaler and the vampire he inspired. Life, welcome to Travel with Rick Steves. Thank you. So... We have this historic character Vlad Tepes, or or Vlad Dracula, nicknamed Vlad the Impaler, and then there's the romantic character Dracula, from the Bram Stoker book. Who, who is who? Who's real, and and what's the story here?
3: Well, Vlad Dracula was a 15th century prince in Wallachia, today's Romania, and he was Prince of Wallachia during a very challenging time. The Ottomans were encroaching from the south, and the Hungarian Empire was coming in from the the north, and the west and uh, they were just kind of like a little tiny grape waiting to be squashed and uh, vlad rather than allow himself to be squashed he he went on the offensive Uh, he managed to broker an agreement with the hungarians and then he went after the ottomans and literally scared them away by impaling people and yes did he drink their blood after Dracula died, there was a lot of writing about this guy. You know, he would even for a violence, very different time. The 15th, he was notably sadistic, and so writers from Germany and Russia, you know, far off and decades after he mm. died, they'd be writing these tales about him, and they embellished quite a bit. He is guilty of a lot of terrible things, but he was never known to be cannibalistic.
0: Okay, so this was a time when when there was brutal tactics. I mean, people would torture each other, and they would cut off their heads and put them on pikes and so on. How
3: was Vlad exceptional? He he was just very creative, for lack of a better word, with killing people, and it was psychological warfare. You know, the Ottoman Empire had his little principality, outnumbered three to one, so he took it to another level hmm. and and succeeded. I, he ultimately died, of course, and the Ottomans eventually made it all the way to the gates of Vienna a couple centuries later. Mm-hmm. But while he was alive, he, he was a legend.
0: So you've almost... um. You've had a more eloquent justification of this cruel, bloodthirsty Vlad the Impaler ruler of this little country by just saying, hey, he was squashed between Hungary and the Ottomans and it was the way he could keep his tribe from becoming wiped out. You wrote in your book some very creative dirty tricks that he used. I mean, he actually dressed people up with leprosy and the plague and sent them to mingle with the enemy.
3: Yeah, he did that and it was extremely successful and it is uh believed to be the earliest or one of the earliest known uses of germ warfare. Romania is wide
0: open. It's part of the EU now. It's perhaps the poorest country in the EU, but it's wide open and traveling there is very straightforward. You don't need a visa or anything like that. You'll find comfortable hotels. It's super affordable. What are the Dracula sites? I mean, a lot of what we think about Dracula is, uh, you know, fanciful, but there's actually honest-to-goodness Dracula sites, right?
3: Oh, yeah. A lot of them have survived. You know, they built things back then to last. And so, uh, for example, his boyhood home in Sigashoral, where he was born and and lived until he was a toddler, that is still standing. It's a restaurant. And uh, the princely court at Targoviste, where Vlad and his father and his grandfather That's where their princely court was, and it was a formidable fortress and castle at the time, and large portions of those ruins are still standing. And, of course, then there's Dracula's castle, the real Dracula's castle up in the mountains right at the border where Wallachia connects with Transylvania. It was an important pass at the time, and it was strategic. He built a castle there, and ruins of that are still standing. And what's the name of that castle? It's called Poinar. The I at the end is silent. So P-O-E-N-A-R-I, that's Dracula's
0: real castle. And the most popular among tourists of all these sites is Sigashora, which is an amazing little Germanic town nestled in the in the hills of Transylvania. Brand castle has the most tourism of any Dracula site. What's with Brand Castle and its association with Vlad the Impaler?
3: Well, as with a lot of things in the 15th century, the details are a little fuzzy. But uh, So there's several different versions of this story. But all of them basically agree that Vlad probably visited there, but didn't spend much time there. And he may have even been briefly imprisoned there. But uh, yes, apart from spending a few nights there either as a guest or a prisoner, he mm. that, that was the beginning and end of his association with Brauncastle.
0: But wouldn't you say of, of all the money spent on Dracula tourism... Maybe half of it is spent at Bran Castle.
3: Oh, certainly. it is. You know, on its own is a, an incredible attraction. And, and because of that, certain people kind of maybe overblow the association mm-hmm. with Dracula just to squeeze out a few extra tourist dollars, Dracula t-shirts and whatnot. Yeah,
0: it's a beautifully situated castle, but the interior really goes back to the 1920s when it was uh, a getaway for Romania's royal family. You know, it's kind of a rustic country retreat, and it's quite an impressive visit just in that regard. But I would say just finding the Romania of Dracula's time would be a good challenge for the travelers without getting too hung up on the scant remains of places that were directly associated with Dracula. Talk about Romania in the 15th century. Where might we go today to get a sense of of Romania from that age?
3: Well, that is kind of the rub. The The best Dracula, surviving Dracula sites are not in the most traveled areas. So you got to really be, you're going to have to rent a car. You know, Targoviste, Poinar Citadel, those places are not on the tourist trail. It's Bran Castle and then Sigashora where you're going to find all the tourists. And, and those are great, but those... Uh, you know, again, Dracula moved away from Sigishore when he was three, and he only temporarily stayed at Brown Castle. If you want to get into some real Dracula stuff, you have to get in a car and, and, and really just go for it.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Life Petterson. Life's book is Backpacking with Dracula on the trail of Vlad the Impaler and the vampire that he inspired. So explain the connection, Life, please, uh, between the historic Vlad Dracula and the Dracula that came out of Bram Stoker's uh, book.
3: Well, there is some debate about that. For a long time, it was believed that Bram Stoker studied Vlad Tepes, Vlad Dracula closely and modeled his vampire monster after this guy. I mean, if you compare the two, probably Vlad Dracula killed more guys in his lifetime than the vampire. But there's now uh, new evidence that suggests that Bram may not have known so much about Dracula. I mean, obviously, he saw the name and, and quite happily adopted it. But there's some argument that he just knew a passing amount about the prince and instead based his vampire on previous characteristics of vampires. You know, vampire storytelling at the time was very popular.
0: So Bram Stoker was just kind of dredging through different legends and scary stories from that region in the Middle Ages and not necessarily based on one character.
3: Yeah, there's theories that he, he... built the character of Count Dracula from a num- numerous people that he was hanging out with there in the late 19th century, including his boss. He worked at a theater for 20-something years. And the boss of the theater, who was also the lead actor, was this tall, gangly guy with a, like a hooked nose and thin gaunt. And uh, it's believed that he may have been the main inspiration just for Dracula's appearance. And how do the Romanians see him today? He is still considered a national hero. I, there's a TV show called 100 Greatest Romanians, and he's right up there at the top. It, despite mm. all his atrocities, he's considered kind of like a, a a great combination of Robin Hood and Rambo. You know, he defended Romania in, in an impossible situation.
0: What about vampires just in general? how What is the historic basis
3: of the, all the focus on vampires? The vampire superstition, that in all of Eastern Europe, that goes way, way back. There was a time where People believed it was true and they believed it so much that even the doubters kind of came around like actual doctors sent from Vienna to investigate stuff going on in Serbia. They they went home and reported that vampires were a real thing and they had to start kind of planning for the inevitable vampire horde. And then, of course, storytellers picked that up right away and, and began not only just writing about it for to make a buck, but kind of embellishing and building on it
0: garlic necklaces and this kind of thing that would all come out of these embellishments of these legends?
3: Yeah, that. And a lot of it was based on existing superstitions. What is now Romania and Bulgaria, Serbia, all that, they believed vampires were real and they were successful in convincing actual doctors at the time that that it was a thing.
0: So it's interesting that we're taking a historic character who, because of circumstances, had to be very vicious and bloody in order to survive between the Hungarians and the Ottomans, in the 1400s, and then you've got these legends of vampires, and you have uh, other scare stories from just rattling around, and then you've got a Victorian novelist that weaves it all together, and it really struck a chord with the public, and today, uh, probably half the tourism going to Romania is looking for the Trail of Dracula.
3: Yeah, it's a bit of a sore spot for the Romanians, because, you know, having the one's entire country associated with a fictional character written by a guy who never stepped foot in the country they, they're a little they're a little salty about that it's it would be like the if everyone associated england with the spice girls
0: ah, that's a very good analogy
3: like the beginning and end of your impression in england oh that's where the spice girl okay and then then you knew nothing else about it that's that's how romania feels so with the with the dracula the situation
0: all right well then if there's a reason to go to romania other than following the little scant track of this uh, vampire Dracula, which is all fictitious. Tell us uh, why we should go to Romania.
3: Well, I would, obviously, I would recommend that you follow the trail of the real Vlad Dracula, Vlad the Impaler. He was he was a character, i uh, just put it lightly. But Romania, you know, Romania is arguably the biggest bang for your buck right now in Europe, and they have so much. The, the, unfortunately, the tourism ministry hasn't done a very good job of, mm-hmm. of really marketing it well, but Romania is probably, and I've been all over Europe, it's probably the most serendipitous, just spontaneous place to travel. Things, especially if you're in a car on your own, you you come across all these strange and wonderful things, especially in the small villages. And then when you interact with these folks, they are very happy to just chit-chat with you and talk. And they'll bring you into their homes and and feed you their homemade plum brandy and, and whatever they happen to have on the stove. there's always something cooking, and they send you off, and it's just, they wanted to hang out with you for a while. That's it. Life, thanks for sharing
0: with us a, a better understanding of uh, Dracula and of his home country, Romania, and thanks for your book, Backpacking with Dracula, and happy travels. Thank you for having me. You'll find a link to Life Peterson's book and website in this week's show details at ricksteves.com radio. Mary Morris takes us with her all the way to India in just a bit. But first, we're off to see the spookier side of New Orleans on Travel with Rick Steves. There's just something about the humid air that hangs heavy in New Orleans that makes you want to believe the city's many ghost stories and legends. As one of America's oldest cities, it has a spooky reputation and old mansions that could easily have you believing that they're haunted and uh, sometimes come with a grisly past. To help us explore the legends of haunted New Orleans, we're joined now by a local tour guide, Sandy Hester. She offers walking tours of the city with a company called Free Tours by Foot New Orleans. She joins us from the studios of our affiliate, WWNO, on the campus of the University of New Orleans. Sandy, thanks for being with us. Thank you. So, New Orleans is sort of known as a place with a strong presence of ghosts and spirits, uh, more than other cities. Why is that?
1: I think it's multi-layered. I think Part of it would be the location of the city, which is basically in a humid swamp where you had numerous diseases and death sort of hanging in the air on a day-to-day basis. There have been several tragedies that have occurred, two major devastating fires where a large section of the city burned to the ground. But I also think it has a lot to do as well with a marketing ploy as it does with anything else of how to lure in tourism, because for some strange reason, humans like a good chill down their spine. They like a good scare, a controlled scare.
0: It's kind of like uh, York and Edinburgh in Britain. Those are the two cities that for some reason, have all the ghosts, and uh, they sure capitalize on that. I think in New Orleans, you've had books that have been set in New Orleans that are scary. You've had TV episodes that feature ghosts set there. What are a few of the, the, the ways we might have seen New Orleans uh, on the screen?
1: Um, definitely, if you've heard any anything to do with Anne Rice, uh, she set her vampire chronicles partly in the city of New Orleans. If you're dealing with the religion of voodoo, there's been several movies that have been set like Angel Heart in and around the area of New Orleans. Skeleton Key, I believe, was another one. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, almost every television show that's going to deal with with ghosts, whether that's American Horror Stories, Coven, the originals being set in New Orleans. Uh So, yeah.
0: And when you do visit New Orleans, I think um, if you're looking for ghosts, you're probably more likely to find them at a cemetery. And there are several cemeteries in New Orleans that really are actually tourist attractions. What makes them worth a visit?
1: So New Orleans is kind of interesting because we're considered to be sort of the northernmost Caribbean city. And a lot of our our culture lines up with the Caribbean, including burying our dead above ground. A lot of people believe that we do that because we're kind of floating on a water table. And don't get me wrong, it, it definitely facilitates the burial process because initially when the French would have first arrived here and buried the dead below ground, when we had a flood event, they had a nasty habit of popping back up uninvited. Mm, That's enough
0: for a scary story right there.
1: Yeah, right. And after that occurred a couple of times, they got the bright idea that they would bury them along the levee of the river to put distance between them and the water table which seems like a bright idea unless you're a structural engineer and you realize you've just punched a bunch of Swiss cheese holes and the only thing holding back the river from the city. So anytime the river would rise, you could potentially have a crevasse right where all of your dead were buried. And so now grandma and grandpa come surfing back into Ah. the city. And then they got the idea to wall the cemeteries off, but still bury below ground so that when they popped up, they at least didn't slide into your front yard.
0: Grandma, I didn't know you could surf. (laughs) I think there's one cemetery, which is like the number one cemetery to visit, which happens to be called number three. What's it like to wander through St. Louis number three cemetery?
1: So typically the cemetery that most people will will want to go to is our oldest extant cemetery. And that one is actually St. Louis number one. But St. Louis number three is located on Esplanade Avenue. And it is sitting over um, the site of where an old leper colony used to exist in New Orleans, which is always kind of interesting. But again, if you can wander freely into that cemetery now, a lot of cemeteries have been closed down. But that one still enables you to go in uh, freely on your own and see the above-ground architecture, which I think is what is the big draw for people who are coming from other parts of the United States where they're used to having the dead buried in ground. So there's a lot of money being spent on these grandiose mausoleums.
0: And some of these monuments are like small homes. I mean, it's amazing how... how ornate they are and how expensive they would be to make.
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, initially when you were creating these mausoleums, you had a lot of, a, a very high illiteracy rate in the city of New Orleans. And the people that were transporting the bodies to the cemeteries to bury them would not have necessarily been able to read on the outside, that this was the family tomb of the person that they were transporting. So usually, what you did in regards to those tombs was you made them look similar to your own house, right down to the iron gate that I adorned didn't
0: know that the oh, front. Yeah,
1: and even originally, you know, now you see that the cemeteries are whitewashed, but initially they would have been painted. Typically, the colors that your house was painted as well.
0: This is travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Sandy Hester, and we're talking about ghosts in cemeteries in New Orleans and Sandy's an artist and a writer with a master's degree in history who likes to spin a good yarn in the beloved traditions of Southern storytelling. Most days, you can find her leading walking tours for a company called Free Tours by Foot New Orleans. Their website is freetoursbyfoot.com and you can click right on through to New Orleans if you're curious about traveling there. So Sandy, what's your favorite ghost story? Tell us a ghost story.
1: Uh, My favorite ghost story actually centers around, there used to be a bar in New Orleans before Hurricane Katrina called the Flaherty's Irish Channel Pub. And it centered around a man who was having an affair, unbeknownst to his wife, obviously. And so when she goes out, his mistress shows up at the house one day, and he's enraged over the fact that she would dare to show up at his house when his wife could potentially come back at any moment and surprise them. They get into an argument. He pushes her through the French doors. She hits the railing of the balcony flips over and falls to her death below. And so being a fine upstanding gentleman, he buried her in the courtyard. And then after he had done this, he looks up and he sees an enslaved child has witnessed the entire event. And so he knows he's in trouble and his wife's going to find out and he's going to lose everything. So he ends up going up to the fifth floor of this building and he hanged himself. And it is haunted by all three entities. It's haunted by him, his wife, and the mistress.
0: That's not a very pleasant place to go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, you know, and whatever you believe as far as ghost stories, and I'm not really sure what I believe as far as what happens to us when we when we pass on, but there were some moments that occurred on that particular tour, the higher up that you went in the building. Yeah. I had people burst into tears. I had people try to run out of the room. I had one girl swear that she had been slapped in the face.
0: Wow. Wow. Um, that has me just scared out of my shoes, but I need more. Tell me another scary story.
1: So, uh there is a there is a house that's located on Royal Street in the heart of the French Quarter and most people in New Orleans consider it to be the most haunted house in the city. And it is known as the Lalaurie Mansion. Uh, some people will pronounce it Lalaurie. Um, it does feature to some degree in American Horror Stories Coven, but it it centers around a woman named Delphine Lalaurie and She is throwing sort of lavish parties at her home, and people, as they go to these parties, are realizing that they never see the same enslaved African twice, which would have been unusual because for a house that particular size, you really wouldn't have needed to have more than about seven enslaved Africans on site. So they started to ask questions, and it eventually comes out as the house during one of the parties catches fire, uh, and the fire brigade arrives and puts the fire out that they discover the horrors that have been taking place inside this particular property. And what has been happening is that she has been abusing and executing those enslaved Africans in a room upstairs. And so there are a few surviving uh, enslaved Africans that are brought down in the midst of this party. And the city sort of learns the horrors that have taken place. So the house, um, the LaLaurie's, by the way, did make an escape and she would live out her days in the lap of luxury in Paris. So no one ever really went on trial or was ever punished for what occurred inside of that house, which is probably one of the things that we like to say makes the house probably as haunted and as cursed as it is. But the house will burn almost all the way to the ground by an angry mob. And it sits in ruins for about a decade And then in the late sort of 1800s, early 1900s, it gets turned into a tenement home for Italians, and they never stay there for very long. Uh, They say that it's hard to sleep at night, that there are screams that occur throughout the night. They wake up in the morning to find their animals have been killed, mutilated on the grounds. One man woke up in the night to see a woman leaning over the crib of his infant. He tried to chase her down the hallway. She disappeared When he came back, um, his wife was holding on to the child, crying inconsolably because someone had stuffed its sock down its throat. So there's numerous stories like this that occur even coming into the more modern era. There's also the concept that no one can seem to hold on to the house for longer than what the Lloris held it, which was about seven years that it's cursed. Uh, One gentleman held it for three years. They found him. He had gone stark raving mad in the home, and they admitted him to a mental institution where he would later take his own life. The most famous person that owned the house was, of course, Nicolas Cage. Mm. And they say that he, too, fell prey to the uh, curse because he got himself into some trouble with the IRS, and all of his holdings in New Orleans were foreclosed on except this particular piece of property. There was um, a very prominent doctor that owned the house. So everyone was kind of rooting for him that he was going to push it past the seventh year. And then in the sixth and a half year, he was in an altercation that left him incapacitated and he lost the house just before the seventh year came around.
0: Sounds like a charming place for a bed and breakfast. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's a a reminder that there's a lot of history, a lot of history. And and it's nice history and it's not nice history. It's it's, uh, scary history.
1: Well, you know, I mean, New Orleans was a frontier town. It was rough, really, when you think about it as a port city. It's not, it's not initially the nice people that are coming to New Orleans.
0: <laughs> That's a good thing to remember. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking ghost stories in New Orleans with our guide, Sandy Hester. Sandy's part of a team of tour guides at the company called Free Tours by Foot New Orleans. It's a company that organizes daily walking tours with local guides in more than 50 cities around the world. The New Orleans chapter has also produced a large number of YouTube videos that you can watch and get some ideas for your upcoming trip. And we have a link to their YouTube channel, and you'll find it in this week's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. Hey, Sandy, we were talking about these over-the-top mausoleums, and if somebody has passed away and they're heading for that final home, it's probably going to come with a, very likely, with a jazz funeral. Where are you likely to see a jazz funeral and and how might you understand what's going on? Because this is a, a for real slice of the New Orleans traditional culture, isn't it?
1: Uh yeah. And a lot of our cemeteries are still active cemeteries. Even our oldest extant cemetery, St. Louis, number one, is still an active, working Catholic cemetery. Jazz funerals, however, are expensive, but typically the way that a jazz funeral would work is that you have a brass band that is leading the procession to the cemetery, sort of playing a very somber dirge-like tune because you are mourning the person who has passed away. That person is usually being transported on a carriage that's drawn by a mule or a horse, And then once the body is interred within the actual mausoleum and you go to exit, then the brass band will strike up a lively tune in honor of the person's life and in celebration of life itself. And at that point, as it meanders through the city streets, sometimes other people would come in that weren't initially a part of the original family members or friend groupings and celebrate this person who's passed away.
0: And if you were a tourist who didn't know the family and you saw a jazz funeral what would the etiquette be? You probably wouldn't be welcome to walk with the procession.
1: You know, I think if if you're in the part where you're walking behind the coffin as it's being transported, I would feel uncomfortable in that stage of the procession. But once it's come out of the cemetery and you're in the celebratory aspect, I have seen strangers go in behind that procession because then it just becomes sort of a celebration of life itself. But I, but I think, unfortunately, most tourists wouldn't recognize necessarily that aspect of a jazz funeral because they're so used to what are known as second-line parades occurring because of things like wedding events.
0: So you'd see a musical procession, and you might just mistake it for some other kind of festival.
1: Exactly. And and they look very similar because typically no. when you come out of the cemetery, you'll see this moment where people pull out their kerchiefs, and they're, they're sort of shaking their kerchiefs to shake off the spirits of the dead so that they don't follow you home, which I always find hilarious when I watch these uh, wedding events where they pull out the kerchiefs behind the second line and they're shaking. And I'm always like, what spirit are you shaking off? Is it like the spirit of the in-laws? Like, please don't don't let his family come for Christmas.
0: Oh, my goodness. See, you know, some aspect of New Orleans that's not necessarily something you'd talk about on your ghost tours, but it's an interesting dimension is the whole voodoo culture. It's kind of shrouded in mystery and secrecy, and a lot of people get a misunderstanding about it just from popular culture and movies and so on. But it's actually a, a, like a, a religion for a whole slice of uh, society. Ta- what is voodoo and where does that come from and what how might we experience that in New Orleans?
1: So the connection with New Orleans to voodoo comes initially with the first shipment of enslaved Africans in, in 1719 uh, and predominantly they're coming from the west coast of Africa, from Senegal, Gambia, down to Angola. And Mm. so they're going to bring those West African traditions over with them. And again, I've mentioned we're the northernmost Caribbean city, so that Afro-Caribbean culture being very strong, sort of allowing the religion of voodoo to flourish.
0: Because in Cuba, I've seen something like that, and it's, it's mixing Catholicism with voodoo.
1: Yes, so in Cuba... There's going to be a similar tribe that's coming in predominantly to Cuba, uh, the Yoruba. They're going to bring a religion that is often referred to as Ifa, and that religion will mix up in Cuba with Catholicism and here with Catholicism as well. But you often see that throughout the Caribbean. But I always like to caution people on a voodoo tour that initially it's not about true West African conversion it's about them hiding West African religions within the iconography of Catholicism in order to keep their
0: religions alive. Oh, so sl- enslaved people were not allowed to keep their former religion, and they had to worship uh, the same religion as their Catholic overlords, but they wanted to secretly keep their pre-slavery traditions as part of their way their children would grow up.
1: Yeah, the only recognized religion here would have been initially under the French and the Spanish was, was Catholicism. Right. But, I mean, if you're enslaved and you've lost literally everything in the transatlantic you want to slave keep that trade, you alive. want religion. Right.
0: And that survives to this day, and you can show it in tours that feature voodoo culture in New Orleans.
1: We do. We, ha- we have an actual voodoo tour where we talk about the West African connections and we talk about the different tribes and how it's progressed from those original religions to what would now be called voodoo in New Orleans today. And mm-hmm. we also talk a lot about sort of where Hollywood goes wrong.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a great thing to do in your tours. Hey, Sandy Hester, thank you so much for joining us and best wishes with your touring. And thanks for giving us a little insight into... Ghosts and cemeteries and spooky things in New Orleans.
1: Thank you so much.
0: We have links to Sandy and her New Orleans tours with this week's show notes at ricksteves.com radio. Mary Morris is known for writing stories that take place during journeys. In 1988, her book Nothing to Declare, Memoirs of a Woman Traveling Alone, brought her to center stage in the male-dominated field of travel writers. She tells us what a trip to view tigers in India revealed to her next on Travel with Rick Steves. Our email address is radio at Ricksteves.com. Her novels, memoirs and story collections have found an appreciative global audience since 1979. In her latest work, Mary Morris describes her efforts to view tigers in the wild of India. It's called "All the Way to the Tigers." Mary joins us today on travel with Rick Steves to focus on the insights her trip to India brought her and how having a sabbatical derailed by a skating accident ended up getting her to go to India in the first place.
2: I was going to spend a year being a nomad. I fell the day I was going to start to leave and had a devastating accident, and I began to read a book, Death in Venice, and I read a sentence in that book, said he would go on a journey not far, not all the way to the Tigers, and I read that, and I knew I would go all the way to the Tigers, and that eventually I would go to India.
0: Mm. So you went to India. Was did that work for you as a travel writer as a destination?
2: Oh my gosh, yes. It was. I mean, I think you know the only thing I regret is that I didn't have more time. And and mm-hmm. I mean, India is one of the most vibrant. It's raw. I mean, I know people. I know seasoned travelers who have trouble being there. I mean, there there's you know a lot of pain on the streets. You know the, the children, the the slums, but there's incredible kindness, and vibrancy, and color, and food, and, uh, you know, I I just loved it. I I love the rawness of it. it it's, there's a rawness. You know, I, I,
0: there's a, it, I just think it confuses all of our uh, self-assuredness. I just love the fact that it humbles me. I, I didn't realize the dimensions of life uh, were not just the way I saw them, but there's a billion people in India. And, and you talk about this. Uh, you, you wrote about uh, being paralyzed just trying to cross the street, uh, not able to figure out how to safely navigate the chaos in the road. What what was that like?
2: Uh, Well, that was really awful. You know, I found actually one of the most challenging things was, you know, as as being a solo woman traveler in India was trying to cross the street. And I tried in Delhi because I was trying to get some food and I had been recommended some good street food by the place where I was staying. But I just stood there and I I literally, I I couldn't figure it out. And, And in the book, I think I refer to it as being at the corner of madness and chaos because um, there's no... I mean, there, there are traffic lights, but nobody pays any attention. The you
0: corner know. of madness and chaos. In, <laughs> in Iran, they call that going to Chechnya when you cross the road because Chechnya <laughs> is such a dangerous place. When I was in India... I would just sit there and sort of just marvel. It was like somebody let the zoo out, you know, and I'm, 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 wait, I'm not waiting for a truck. I'm waiting for an elephant to go by. And, uh, and right. then I, I fly into a little small-town airport, and a, an old 1960s Chevy is the airport shuttle that takes me from the, from the tarmac over to the trees where everybody's waiting. And it's just uh, every time you crowd onto a bicycle rickshaw, there's some sort of moment that you couldn't put in a guidebook, but you'll never forget it.
2: No, I mean it's it's really true and that late in the book and all the way to the tigers, there's a moment where I'm really determined to cross the street, right? Like I'm really going to cross the street and I did the same thing. I couldn't cross the street and this red street dog came right next to me, right? Uh-huh. And I watched the dog like look both ways and then uh-huh. dodge through the cars and I thought, OK, if the dog can do it, I'm going to do it. The dog followed the dog. I, the dog.
0: I love that. I,
2: I followed the dog, and you know, and I I got across the street. I mean, of course, I had to go back across the street when I was ready to go back. But
0: um, follow the dog—that would be the. I followed of the chapter. dog. Yeah. yeah, every day yeah. when I was in India, I would just walk in a different direction. I didn't even need the <laughs> guidebook. You just walk in a. Di- today I'm going to walk that way, and right. and it's just swimming in color and joy. And one of the amazing things about India is just to get away from a checklist of sites. Of course, you're going to see the Taj Mahal and so on, but right. but connect with how people are living and. Like you said, it's got so much pain, but it's got so much joy. And there's something about India that's sort of mass joy. And if you can just think of a billion people sharing all their joy and jumbling it together, we cannot judge it as far as is it happy or is it sad. It's, It's just alive.
2: Right, it's like a, its own forest, you know. It just it connects with itself and it pulsates and it's just alive within itself. And it, it's very hard to explain if you haven't, you <laughs> know, been there. And you know, one of the things that happened, you know, one day was I I wandered, you know, off of my my path and I, I found myself actually just mistakenly in a in a pretty bad slum. I mean, it was really bad and. I got lost in it. Mm-hmm. And everyone was like, oh, no, go that way, go that way. And I thought, you know, anything could have happened to me there at any minute. And everyone just – they just helped me out. You know, people were good. Yeah,
0: it's, and, it's, it's so you know, I think for us not to mistake poverty with danger. People have different priorities. They've got different budget constraints. And we often confuse that with, oh, I shouldn't be here. You know, you have to be smart and, and you don't want to get yourself into trouble but we we got to be careful not to shut doors needlessly. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Mary Morris, and she's written Nothing to Declare, Memoirs of a Woman Traveling Alone, and her latest book is All the Way to the Tigers. You can learn more about Mary's work at MaryMorris.net. Mary, when I'm in India, one of the adjustments for me is time. For me, time is money. I was raised to invest <laughs> it, to save it, to bank it, you know, to use it smartly. And in India time is just like bubblegum, You play with it. And I felt locals were just, they wanted to annoy me. It was their way to be powerful against me, the rich white guy from America, was they could just say, hey, time is out of your control, baby, and we're going to waste some for you.
2: I mean, I love, I love that notion of it because, you know, it's true. Time just is not, it doesn't mean the same thing that it, it means to us. It's Also, I I feel like people are living more in the moment and more in the experience rather than like the next thing they have to get to. And then there's the next thing. And I think if you just can let yourself go with that when you're in a place like India and, you know, put the itinerary aside because it's not always going to work out. You know, you're going to have to, you know, the food's not going to come right away. You're not going to be able to cross that road that you thought you had to cross, you know.
0: And and you need to make a point to to become a temporary local. And that doesn't mean, Mm. you know, running around in local garb, but it means just if you go to a restaurant where everybody's eating with their fingers... That's not a bad thing. There's a big ceremonial sink in the middle of the room. You've got all these elegant, professional people eating with their fingers. They do it by choice. They've got, you know, spoons and forks in the drawer, but they don't want to stick metal utensils in their mouth while they nourish themselves. God gave us fingers to help us eat, and you can eat vegetarian with your fingers in a nice tali plate in India, and it's such an important attitude to become a temporary local. I
2: love the idea of becoming a temporary local. I mean, I'm going to just embrace that because I think that is the goal of every real traveler as opposed to tourist, is that that's what you want to do. And it's one of the reasons that, in fact, when I travel with my family or just my husband, we stay in a place. We will live somewhere. We don't go traveling around. So if we're in Southern Italy, we are living in the place, we are going to the markets, we are cooking, we're shopping. Well, that's shopping.
0: it. And in India, you need to do that in spades. And one thing is the choices you make. You're going to stay in a comfortable hotel that's designed for Westerners, I, I would advise anyways. You need that refuge. But when you take the tour, you remember tour companies, in my experience in India, they offer two tours, one for Western tourists in a fancier bus, and one for local tourists. And remember, hmm. English is the common language in India. That's one reason why it's it can be such a, a different and challenging culture, but we have that inside track because we speak the language that the Indians speak. Because India is as diverse culturally and linguistically, I think, as Europe, and uh, they have that one common denominator when it comes to communicating. It's just the language the British imposed on them when they colonized it. So we have that advantage, but opt for the local buses. The local. It's a touristy thing, but it's for local tourists, and then you've got that easy inside track, and you're the most popular kid on the bus because everybody wants to talk to you.
2: These are just this is such great tips. You know, I'm getting getting a lot out of here listening to you talk about it because, you know, you've had that experience that I haven't had that. But when I go back, I'm going to do the local local buses. But, you know, it's you know, I found that my guides would speak in Urdu, I think, was their language when they didn't really want me to understand. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but otherwise they would speak English. And you're, you're right that there is a the common language and you, you certainly can get around in India using a common language you know, that way. India can
0: be a, a little frightening because it's just it's a teeming with a, a billion people and there's so much poverty and unpredictability and so on. And there's, there's frightening bad news that happens that we tend to read. I remember when I was first planning my trip to India, the first year I, I actually found an excuse to cancel it. I had the flight and I just, I, lost my, I just lost my nerve and I canceled it and went back to Europe again. But when I finally went to India, I was glad I did. Were you ever afraid as you planned or, or while you were in India?
2: I was only afraid once and it wasn't really for myself exactly. I was in Varanasi, and I was I was walking around and I saw what I thought was a pile of trash. It was night and it started moving and then I realized it was children. I found that extremely, you know, like in the midst of all the, the color and the vibrancy and everything of India, we can't forget, you know, the levels of poverty and the, the orphans and, you know, all of that. And so, you know, those were certainly moments that I did really give me pause.
0: Well, there's, there's pretty, from our standards, pretty horrific discrimination against certain classes and for the state of women. Of course, you've, you wrote the iconic memoir of a woman traveling alone called Nothing to Declare. I can't imagine you travel anywhere without being mindful of what would other women be experiencing here, and how can I learn things to share with women travelers? What's the state of women in Indian society from your perspective as someone traveling there from the West?
2: Well, you know, it's it's really interesting. I mean, I have I mean, I always try to talk to women wherever I go. You know, if I'm in a in a cafe or if I'm somewhere if I can if I can strike up a conversation with a woman in a laundromat or something like that, that's really important to me. And one of the things I found is that there seem to be the kind of more passive women who sort of accept the status quo and they're, you know, dressed in their saris, which are gorgeous, but they're more you know they they don't have quite the empowerment that other women do and then i met a lot of women who were very very strongly feminist in their thinking and and i'm not talking about you know women necessarily coming from you know means i mean women in villages who did not wish to be under the thumb of their of their husbands and their you know for example the sewing machine project which i think is a really great project which you know to give them agency over their own lives and control over their own lives because you know otherwise The abuse is horrific. Uh, Domestic violence is terrible. And, um, you know, women, I think, in India, almost as much as anywhere in the world, are are looking for that sense of agency and that empowerment for themselves. And I think that's a direction women are going in now more and more in India.
0: You know, Mary, one thing I found really helpful was to get into the local news. Uh, The whole news media in India, all the, the India Time magazine, the sort of sister of USA Time magazine and so on, It's in English, and it's very easy to get into Indian news, and it's fun to realize there's the biggest democracy on the planet, is in Indian. They speak English and uh, you can then kind of know what's the context of these struggles and what are the, the strides being made and, and the disappointments being dealt with as, as far as women becoming, uh, getting a, a more dignity and more freedom in their society and so on. So there's ways that you can bring a better understanding in a context so you know what's going on around you. Mary Morris teaches writing at Sarah Lawrence College in New York. Her novels, short stories, and nonfiction works often deal with the tension between home and away. Her latest work is All the Way to the Tigers. Mary started out in 1979 with a short story collection called Vanishing Animals. Mary outlined some recent gains in tiger conservation on her website, marymorris.net. You can listen to Mary's earlier interviews with us from the links to our show archives at ricksteves.com radio got just a couple minutes. I want to talk about itinerary tips and so on. Do you have a tip that you would recommend for helping people stay sane with the intensity around? You you step out into the street and it's just, as we were talking, kind of crazy. How do you get a break from that? We're all just human and sometimes it's overwhelming.
2: I mean, I think having a place to stay that feels comfortable and safe and you can get away from the intensity of it um, I particularly found in Varanasi, I mean, as a woman traveling alone, like, one of the things that I like to do are stay in guest houses where they give you a meal, and that way you meet fellow travelers. Like, it's much better than hotels. So, in Varanasi, I think I stayed in the Ganges View
0: meeting, guest house. Meeting Western travelers.
2: Yes. Yeah, because that's, pra- yes. a, that's just a meet, comfort you thing. You meet Western travelers and, and in and you need situation. that. You
0: can compare notes, and you've got uh, an expensive enough place that doesn't let riffraff come in from the street. I mean, riffraff's probably not a very delicate word, but the fact is, when you're so relatively wealthy traveling in countries like this, you're attracting people that are just begging. And uh, I remember being on trains, and at every stop, there was just a river of people coming through begging. And I was glad to be there, but there was no escape from it. And you can find an escape from that wherever you're traveling in the developing world by having a hotel that's Expensive enough, frankly, that takes care of who comes and goes. As you have your refuge,
2: right? And I think, critically in Varanasi, I would find that the minute I walked out of my guest house, I was swarmed with beggars, just yeah. swarmed with them. And then I would, you know, I would retreat back. And um, you know, you, you have to strike a balance because India is an assault, it's not an a assault physical on assault. The That's what it's it an is. It's an assault on the senses. Yes,
0: and in countries and... all over the world where you have that, people, local elites frankly, have their own social clubs where their kids go to play tennis, and they have beautiful parks, dreamy parks that have a 25-cent admission fee, and the 25-cent admission fee just kind of makes sure that it doesn't get overwhelmed by people. I found a very comfortable place to go just to get a little break was a theater, because India has a huge uh, cinematech, and uh, you pay a dollar to go into a theater. It's air-conditioned, it's dark, and for just a couple of hours, you're back in the West, and then you step outside and and it's just like the the blowtorch of the weather hits your face and you're dodging animals in the street and be careful where you step and you're back in the fray.
2: I mean, just the dodging of the animals in the street alone is quite extraordinary. You know, like, I mean, there's just so much, you know, just being in a car in India and you're, you know, you're weaving in and out. I mean, it's, nothing to see two friends that just stop in the middle of the road to have a conversation during rush hour. And so, I
0: love it. You know, I you have love to be able, so much. You have that. to
2: love it and embrace it and you also have to be able to you know, <laughs> retreat and have a quiet meal and whatever gets you through the night. So. Whatever
0: gets you through the night. <laughs> you know, um, Jim from Clarksboro in New Jersey sent us an email and, and Jim says, we're going to India as soon as possible. We're taking the typical U.S. company tour of the usual tourist routes in India but then we've arranged with an Indian firm to do a national park tour of five or six parks that are known for their wildlife and particularly their tigers. Uh, and, uh, you know, you've written this book All the Way to the Tigers about your uh, tiger uh, adventure in India. What tips do you have for a traveler like Jim that wants to see tigers? Well,
2: first of all, Jim, I envy you. It sounds fabulous. And I love the fact that you're mixing and matching that with, you know, the, the traditional and then the national parks. Um, some of the stuff I said uh, I said earlier, but I'll say again, which is... Um, You want to check the season of the year and be sure you don't want to go in the heat of the heat, but you also don't want to go in the winter because you won't see tigers. I think going to a variety of national parks on tiger safari is a really good idea because sometimes you'll see them in one place and you won't see them in other places. And even though you can't really control the guides that you get when you're in the national parks, what I found, if you find a guide that you like and that works for you and you're you know, works in a positive way for you as a tourist traveler. You can actually pay off other guides. That If you want that guide back again, you can pay off another guide or two that's waiting in line ahead of that guide to get yours back. And it winds up being about $4, quite frankly. It's not a lot of money. So like with Ajay, for example, we were only going to have him for one day. And then I said, no, I want him to be my guide. Mm-hmm. And so every day we had to pay essentially $4 to the person who was waiting to get into
0: my Jeep, and then Ajay would get into my Jeep. There's a very practical tip. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Mary Morris. Her latest book is All the Way to the Tigers. You know, I'm not into tangible souvenirs, but I've been to India on two amazing trips, and I brought home the biggest souvenirs I've ever brought home both times from India. One time I brought home a sitar, and the second time I brought home a a porcelain squat toilet. (laughs) I went to a of a, a hardware store, and I bought this squat toilet, and it was one of my prized possessions. I never actually plumbed it at home, but my friends got a kick out of it. But my most important souvenirs from India, of course, are the intangible ones, changing my perspective. But what's your thought on souvenirs from India? Did you bring anything home, uh, tangible or intangible?
2: Well, first of all, in terms of tangible, uh, one of my the things I, I hold to as a woman traveler is I have to be able to carry my own luggage. So I tend not to weigh things down. I carry one suitcase and one backpack, and that's it. Um, But, you know, I bought a lot of silk. I bought a lot of silk scarves, and I love them. And I kind of remember where I bought them, and those have been very important to me, and I've given them as gifts. And, you know, I think I, I try to support the local women. So a lot of what I got in terms of tangibles was that, those, the That's silk. a
0: great one. Uh, so it's yeah. easy to pack and it's so meaningful and it's supporting local artisans.
2: Exactly. And in terms of the intangible, I think the real intangible gift was from that whole question of, of listening and silent and just, you know, listening to the people around you and, and learning from them. And I, I learned so much from my guide, Ajay. Um, He taught me so much about about tigers and about the natural world and just just in his silence, Mm -hmm. not in the things he said, but in the things he didn't say.
0: Mm. Mary Morris, thank you for your thoughtful reporting on travel and best wishes with uh, your future writing. Again, the book is All the Way to the Tigers. And Mary, thanks for being our travel partner.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you, Rick.
3: Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. I'm the executive producer, Tim Tatton. Assisted by associate producers Casmora Hall and Donna Bardsley. We'll look for you again next week with more travel with Rick Steves.